1977, veteran director John Frankenheimer threw his hat into the ring of 70s disaster movies with an absurdly plotted drama about terrorists exploding the Goodyear blimp over the Super Bowl. The movie was relatively unacclaimed, as was the book it was adapted from, by its then first-time novelist. So there was absolutely zero indication that the author's second and third books would almost single-handedly and so radically change the landscape for crime portrayed in film and television ever since. That's because the author of Black Saturday was Thomas Harris. His second novel in 1981 was Red Dragon, and his third novel, released in 1988, was Silence of the Lambs. Creating a story and a genre with a psychological profiler at the heart of its narrative was groundbreaking. The skill with which Harris put the reader inside the mind of a hunter, trying to get inside the mind of a predator, is exhilarating. In the movie Manhunter, director Michael Mann would reprise the neon palettes and synthesizer-soaked soundtracks of his past TV efforts such as Miami Vice and Crime Story. Dante Spinotti steps in behind the lens, and along with production designer Mel Bourne, they deliver up a sumptuously rich visual and audio experience. William Peterson is brilliantly cast as the profiler Will Graham, who has recently retired from profiling after he brought to custody Hannibal Lecter, but not before Lecter attacked him and nearly killed him. In Manhunter, a new serial killer is murdering entire families, and the FBI cannot get a bead on who this unsub might be. Head of the BSU, Jack Crawford, played by Michael Mann favourite the great Dennis Farina, approaches Will to convince him to help. Graham reluctantly agrees. The movie that follows is a tense game of cat and mouse, where Peterson's performance is the centrepiece of the film as he attempts to become almost a voyeur into the workings of a psychopathic mind. In the scene that brings the breakthrough for Graham, it is shot claustrophobically, awkwardly, in a closed room, with just Will and Jack Crawford. Will is watching home movies transferred to videotape of the two families which were gathered from the crime scenes as evidence. Graham is obsessively playing and replaying the videotapes on two TVs and two VCRs. In a slow build-up, Graham has his dawning moment of insight. The music swells as he barely whispers his insight, and whilst Crawford is on the phone confirming Graham's hunch, Will walks over to stand at a full-screen window. It's nighttime, dark outside. Will is reflected in the glass, alluding to him being a reflection of his various quarries, like Lecter and Dollarhide. He's back to the camera. He puts his hand up and lightly touches the glass and his reflection, as if trying to reach through to another dimension. We see Will's face in slight profile, and reflected in the window. It's a scene of great restraint, yet immense impact. The scene is scored and edited brilliantly, with assured direction, but most of all, it is killer casting. Welcome to Kill.
Killer Casting. I am Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director in Los Angeles, probably best known for my work on CBS's long-running show, Criminal Minds. Why are you smiling, Ryan? Because you... <laughs> Because you got to, hi, I'm Lisa. Oh, shut up. I'm working on my voice. Anyway, with me today are my two sexy beasts. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. Brian A. Hill, Los Angeles, California. You'll never take me alive. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Dean Laffin from uh, Melbourne, Australia, representing the Southern Hemisphere today. Uh, It's a beautiful day today in Los Angeles. It's crispy, cool. Um, uh, It's just a beautiful day. And I really am so excited to talk to my beasts about my next obsession. Last time we talked about Mr. In-Between, but we are in a totally different world now because we're going to be covering season four of the FX show Fargo, which I watch on Hulu. So just a quick story, you know, Fargo, the film by the Coen brothers, starring Francis McDormand, Steve Buscemi, and so many other great actors. It's one of my favorite movies. And I think it just created its own genre. It's just an incredible piece of work. But for some reason, when the series came out, I, for for whatever reason, I didn't start watching it, even though trailers look great and the casting by Rachel Tenner looks amazing, but I never tuned into it. And for some reason, season four, which all I saw in the trailer was Chris Rock was in it and that piqued my interest and I started watching it. I had no idea if I needed to watch seasons one, two, or three. I just wanted to see if it could stand alone. And this happens to me, Brian, I don't know if this happened when you were living with us, but do you remember that the first episode of Game of Thrones I saw was The Red Wedding? And I had no idea... (laughs) who anybody was, what was happening. But I like that because I like figuring things out. I don't like over exposition. You know, I want to figure out what's happening. So I figured, hey, I'm going to try that with this with this season two. But I shouldn't have worried because from what I can tell, it's a completely standalone season. I don't feel like I'm missing anything out from the previous seasons. And I really just fell in love with it. There's things that make that I that madden me about it. There's things that pique my interest. There it's just such a rich, rich show. And we're not gonna spoil all the major events in the series. I think we're I think right now at the time of this recording, it's episode six has aired. We're just going to talk about the first episode because there's so much to talk about. So if you've already seen it, you're going to love our breakdown of episode one. If you haven't seen it, it's just going to give you a great deep dive into this world. Brian, what do you think? And you wanted to make a a proclamation. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm, so my point of view is uh, of someone who has watched the previous seasons. And I'm a big, huge fan of Noah Hawley. And I came to the Fargo series that first season with a lot of mistrust because the whole notion of the reboot, the reimagining, whatever you want that word to be, I think is hot garbage. And I, I hate it. So the idea of taking this iconic movie and making it into a series, I thought, oh, they're going to fuck it up. But I was blown away by the first season and by the performances and by the surprises from episode one on. It broke the mold in so many ways, in in the ways that I think all of us enjoy, right? They didn't fall into these kind of standard traps. They weren't afraid to kill their babies without giving anything away. So I've watched I've watched all of the, the previous seasons, plus I've watched Legion. So I'm judging this season based on his broader work. I'm also judging in the context of previous mob entertainment, 
right? So Godfather 3 was judged against the new kid in town, Goodfellas, plus also the previous two, plus everything that had come like after Godfather 2 and when Godfather 3 entered the marketplace. And we have so many documentaries, books, movies about the birth of the American mafia that even the most casual viewer can have a better than working knowledge of the nuts and bolts of the mafia in this country. All that being said, I'm also terribly uncomfortable with being a critic because I think most critics and modern criticism lack an intellectual rigor and the internet has only amplified anonymous cruelty and critiques. It almost ventures on a kind of revenge porn. So like the the gold standard is Robert Brewstein, the theater critic, who was a practitioner. I think that's the thing that separates him from so many other critics. So I went back and I looked at the first two seasons, first episodes to see how I felt about the introduction of those stories compared to my feeling about the introduction of this season story. So I, I'll be really, I'm saying all of this to preface that I'm going to be the contrarian, I think, in in the bunch. But I want it to be known that it is coming from a thoughtful place and from a place of real fandom. It's a beautiful, authentic looking production. It's grandiose in its vision, operatic in its vision, even if I think that it falls short. That's my caveat. So I think that there's a huge difference between hate watching and snark watching and true reactions like Dean. He's a film buff and a TV buff and a reaction from him as an audience member and my own reaction, whether I'm a professional or not. So we're going to do that, you know, have our reactions. And that's what it is. You you have to have an authentic reaction and then go back and put on your, your brain, your smarty pants brain and pick it apart, which is why I watched this twice. And I watched it first to just to have my experience of it. And then I went back again and then I marked and then I just took it. I analyzed it like a diacritic model. I mean, I, I really put on my theory hat. And hopefully a lot of people who are listening to this is like, what the fuck are they talking about? We're just here to talk about Fargo. But I think because Brian and I are in the industry, we know how hard it is just to get a freaking show on the air. It's casting stones that we don't want to cast. However, it's important. It's important to look at the work and hold it up to the light and and talk about it. Uh, Dean, Please weigh in here. I might fall somewhere between Brian and yourself. Like Brian, I'd watched series one, two, and three prior to this and was blown away as Brian was. Again, like you, Lisa Fargo, the movie was one of my favorites, the Coen brothers, probably my favorite filmmakers of all time. So when when the first season came out, I was like Brian on tenterhooks going, this can't possibly go well. And it went so much better than I expected. And you wouldn't say you, you can't say better than the movie, but they certainly did not let the Fargo brand down. If you want to sort of talk about it in in those terms, and two and three were were likewise excellent. So I approached four with a bit of trepidation, and in the first five minutes of the opening, I was feeling, oh no, this is clumsy. This is not going to work. I'm not liking this. And five minutes later, after a certain scene, I thought this might be. <laughs> The best thing I've seen this year. So (laughs) I went from sort of one extreme to the other, and I'm not sure where I've settled yet, having not, of course, it's not finished. So yeah, I'm keeping an open mind and I am enjoying it. I want to jump right into what the beginning of this season brings. And again, I have no idea what all the other seasons brought. I'm completely innocent to all that. Uh, Yes. (laughs) I will say this like, there is the thinnest of threads that sometimes connect one, two, and three, but they are not 
important to a grander kind of storytelling. Each season can stand independent of every other season. So you don't have to watch one, two, and three, although I highly recommend watching one, two, and three. This starts out with a prologue that is 20 minutes long. And if you only watch that prologue, dear listeners, that would be fantastic because it's one of the best beginnings of a show that I've ever seen. It's a real standalone piece of work, this first 20 minutes. <laughs> Dean, you know, you, you mentioned that the last show we covered, Mr. Inbetween, was only 20 minutes long. And this show is a full hour long and it feels like fucking five hours because it's so dense. I found myself holding my breath for the entire <laughs> hour of the show. It starts out with a young teenage girl standing in the principal's office waiting to be seen and just from the jump you know you know so much in the first 45 seconds of the show you know the period because you can tell because she's in a period costume she's sitting there in the principal's office with the secretary is already looking at her with disdain and says what did you do this time and we can see through the window that the principal is beating the fuck out of another student now i need to mention that the young teenage girl in the principal's office is black and the boy being beaten by the principal is also black. And the principal is white and the secretary is white. So right away, it just tells you a lot about what's going on, that there's corporal punishment going on. Back, We're probably back in the 50s, something like that. And the VO is this young teenage black girl starting to tell her history report. And her VO goes through the history report and it's juxtaposed with what we're seeing on screen. And it's My History Report by Ethel Rita Pearl Smutley. And her first quote is of Frederick Douglass and it's, I stand before you a thief and a robber. I stole this head, the limbs, this body from my master, and I ran away with them. And her point is the moment that their feet touched American soil African-Americans were already criminals. So what did you think about this this first part of the scene? And I, before I, I, I just want to add a little bit, the principal does come out and the actor they cast as the role of the principal has got one of the best visuals I've ever seen. His face is like a Mack truck mated with a bulldog and had a baby. It's so fantastic. His face just tells a story. There's a cruelty to it. And this is what killer casting is all about. He has no lines. You know, he doesn't have a line up until that point, but look. Looking at him, you just know the world that we've just entered. The way he looks at her and she's just resigned to what's about to happen. It makes for effortless storytelling. It does the heavy lifting. Beasts, what do you think? So the opening scene is really interesting. As I said before, I, I initially wasn't quite sure that it was going to grab me. And then if you haven't seen them yet, the, the character Ethel Ryder is taken to the principal's office a couple of times. And because I think I'm just a little bit weird and I join dots, as she's taken away from the principal's office, she's led by the elbow, by you know the secretary or, or, or teacher or somebody, and she's taken back to her classroom and when the very first we see her she's she's sort of pushed onto in, in front of the camera from our left to right and I, and I thought that was odd and then when she was being led down the hallway she passes a janitor and the camera is behind her and the teacher and the janitor gives her this really weird look and it happens not once but twice down the same hallway and I'm thinking 
I've seen this before, and it finally clicked. It is a shot-for-shot or camera track remake of the Coens in Raising Arizona when H.I. McDonough is taken from the photographs with Holly Hunter's character, and he's walked by the elbow, the trustee's got him by the elbow, and walks him past the cleaner who scowls at him. And it's just, I just burst out laughing. What a fantastic little homage there from um, from Noah Hawley. I'm sure that's what it is, or maybe it's just my imagination, but I had a chuckle about that in a quite a serious part of the intro, but I just thought that was brilliant. I love it. That's a deep cut. That's a deep cut, man. Like, yeah, you know, I didn't even get that reference. I, I don't know those that film well enough. You know, for me, that when that janitor's, see, that janitor's look to her, that's about 45 seconds into this episode and it just establishes everybody hates her like even the fucking janitor looks at her with disdain so far everybody and and that as you say it gets repeated again and again the teachers hate her that you know and she's getting and she's getting in fights at school but anyway it's it's just amazing and her go ahead brian for me the report voiceover explaining the history as a device it didn't work for me because she's laying out, okay, the crime family thing and then inserting commentary about her own life. And I was like, okay, well, again, it's about the payoff. Who is this being delivered to? And it doesn't seem to maintain a kind of consistent narrative. It seems really kind of ham-handed as a device to kind of introduce the criminal history of Kansas City that gets us to 1950. That was kind of my initial response to it. And I understand also, too, okay, if that's a device used simply for the prologue, okay, fine. Okay, cool. I hear you. And you acknowledge me. um, I acknowledge you. Acknowledge your feelings. (laughs) I see you. Have your feelings. Um, for me, starting a series from a POV of a young black girl in the 50s, looking back at the Kansas City of yore, for me was such a unique thing. It was just a strong, I just loved it. I, I just really responded to that. Maybe it's the times we're living in. For me, it was everything. Her VO with the report and all of the, the parallels between who is an American. For me, it worked. sure about this? You remember what happened to the Irish? Italians, they're the past. We're the future. They just don't know it yet. We're the goddamn Roman Empire. So just to just set the scene and we're going to I want to talk about the scenic elements, too, which maybe you'll be a little bit warmer feeling about the scenic elements, right, than you are about the, the structure. But she starts off her report and she's talking about Kansas City of yore. And we start in front of a tavern. It says Joplin's, right? It's very clearly the center of town, a busy meeting place on a busy city. And, and the street is filled with horse-drawn characters. Everybody's in period costume. So we know we're not in the 1950s, right? We're, we're back. Back probably late 1800s, early 1900s, right? Top hats, cravats, all that stuff, period costume. And she says, in the beginning, there were Hebrews. They ran the underworld. And 
that's what you see in this speakeasy called Joplin's. You see a group of men all in sepia tones. You see the leader of the, this Hebrew underground mafia called Yev Moskowitz, played by the great actor Andy Rothenberg. And looks, again, once again, looks matter in this show. His very intense look matters. And there's no dialogue, just her voiceover. And you see the Hebrew mafia led by Moskowitz. And it's very important that he's sitting there conducting business and he's drinking milk in the speakeasy. Then 1916, she establishes, here comes the Irish. And they show that same busy street, but now there are automobiles. And the the, the costumes are changing. And these two groups of men meet each other face-to-face in front of Joplin's. The Hebrew gang, the Moskowitzes with their leader, and they face off against the the Mulligans? Mulligans and their leader. And again, what a face on the head of the Mulligans. He's scarred. He's got this thick, thuggy face. No more top hats, right? Now we've got a lot of caps and layers of costumes, vests, ties, jackets, the Milligan leader has got a fur trimmed collar and it's just a fantastic, all of these layers. And it's just, it's just screaming style. It's screaming period. None of these characters actually bought these clothes. <laughs> like it's not that realism. Um, it's not gritty. It's very, very style forward showing you the style. And it's just great. They, these two families meet, they spit, shake hands. And then this amazing scene happens where the two groups of families go inside and this use of rhythm is something that you we're normal as theater artists brian and i are used to seeing a lot of rhythm used on stage and i've never seen it used on screen this way that these two rival families go inside the tavern and there's this call and response stomping where one side stomps the other side stomps it's like this ritual this this rhythm and i'd love to get a sociologist or a history professor on the show to tell us if this is accurate like where this comes from it's just such a specific interesting thing and they they do this it's almost like a sacrifice between them it's it's this ritual and again no words have been spoken yet guys just Ethel Rita's VO. What happens is the Moskowitzes and the Mulligans each shove a son into the middle of the room. To keep the peace, the head of each family gave his youngest son to the other in trade. So each son goes to the other family. So the the Irish kid goes to the Jews and the Jewish kid goes to the Irish. And just the looks that the patriarchs are giving each other, it's like... I don't know. It just filled me with tension and like, what's going to happen? Somebody is going to (laughs) die. Somebody in this family, some child, something, something is going to happen. And as a device, as a device, I mean, especially with the Irish and the kind of, I don't know, gypsy heritage, it makes perfect sense that that kind of trade would be enacted to keep the peace. It's a really great convention in the show until, and then continue and then we'll and go from the there. just the visuals of it all, just the spatial relationship. And I'm going to explain, this is a very heady theory stuff, but the spatial relationships between the actors, between the characters, the way that Noah Hawley paints the, the composition of the shots is to me really, really fascinating. Anyway, so the kids have been switched. Things kind of settle in. It looks like the little Irish boy has kind of settled in with the Moskowitzes. He sits with them at Joplin's and the boy gets up to fetch 
more milk for the patriarch, Moskowitz. And he goes into the back room, he unlocks the back door, and what happens? Double cross. Double cross. He lets in the Irish family, and this was clearly set up. Clearly the Irish patriarch was like, kid, when you get on into the the Hebrews, you're going to do this double cross. And the Irish come in with these Tommy guns or, or whatever they are, machine guns, and just mow all the Hebrews down. And it's an amazing shot. It's it's shot from above. You just see all these Irish thuggy guys filing into the saloon and just wasting everybody. And the little Irish kid, he who betrayed them, he can't watch. He's not part of the bloodthirstiness of this. He's got to turn around and plug his ears. But his father is like, no way. You are part of this. Well done, boyo. And they bring in the little Hebrew boy. And the Irish patriarch makes his son murder the Jewish boy. And it's just, I mean, for me, anytime I see children in danger, children having been part of violence, it, it really upsets me. That was the scene, Lisa, that when I said the first sort of five, ten minutes, I was not sure. And then when that happened, I went, oh, okay, there's <laughs> there's nothing off the cards, nothing off the table here, right? It's anything can happen. Okay, you better sit up and pay attention because this that was a an amazing scene. Yeah, I mean, I think cinematically, I mean, in terms of, again, the operatic quality of it, the slow motion, the steady stream of men into the, the blast, you can see the blast through the glass window of the door that rabbi's on the other side of and the bullet holes going through the wall with the light streaking through. Yeah, the, the violence of it, it's like... So what Noah Hawley is starting here, he's starting this repetition and this rhythm. He's teaching you how to understand the world because next comes another repetition. We're in 1934, moving forward in time as Ethel Rita is narrating. And who comes next? The Italians, right? So we establish this repetition, these two warring groups of gangsters. They meet in front of Joplin's speakeasy, just like the time before. This time it's the Irish Mulligans and the Italian Fada family, right? I'm very interested in this family. The costumes start to change. The hats now are fedoras. The jackets are now Italian leather. And what I love about, because I'm Italian, and of course, as we've mentioned, you know, there's so much Italian mafioso canon out there. The faces of these Italians are not your normal goombats, okay? They're not recycled from other mafia shows. In fact, this Italian patriarch, Fada, he's got pale blue eyes, which is a Northern Italian trait, not Sicilian. The family name is Fada. Again, the two fathers, the patriarchs, they do a spit handshake. And what I noticed about the, the, mull the mulligan patriarch, now he's in a full length fur coat. When he first comes to America, he's got a little bit of a fur. Now he's full on. It shows you his wealth, his status. I just think it's amazing. And Brian's going to talk about in a second. Fada, the Italian, keeps his hat so low, it partially obscures his face, which is really was really an interesting choice to me. What do you want to say about that, Brian? Well, it's, it's, it evo I mean, in the same way that the, the janitor scene evokes raising Arizona, that cocked hat and the way he looks beneath the brim of that hat is right out of Miller's Crossing with Gabriel Byrne. There's a couple really iconic scenes like that's how he wears his hat and that's what we see of his eyes like under the brim of that hat. And so it's a really great kind of callback. I mean, I, I think that Noah is so enamored of the canon and is so respectful of the canon. And you see it in these moments that are just 
Fantastic. I'm so glad that you've watched those films because I don't know very much of the Coen's oeuvre. I've, you know, I've seen Fargo and a bit of Raisin Arizona, but that's it. Just in terms of talking about casting and they're not your kind of standard Goombas. I mean, I went to IMDb Pro. Most of these guys are Italian. They're authentically Italian. And there's a different vibe about Italian actors as opposed to Italian-American actors. Very much so. It's very, very different. So you can again, see repetition. We go back. We're into Joplin's. There's going to be the sun trading ceremony. There's the stomping in this smoke-filled back room. But time has passed. That little Irish boy who was part of the double cross and trade, he's now a teenager. And there's a second younger son, he's probably about eight years old, who's the new little Irish boy who's going to be part of this trade. He's nervous. He's biting his lip. Across the room, there's the Fada family with his son next to him, nervously waiting the trade. And Fada pushes his son to the center of the room. And what happens? Milligan starts to push his young son, but nah, (laughs) he goes and he he pushes the teenage son who's already done his time in this enemy territory, who's already proved his loyalty. He's got to go again. And that, I just, that storytelling, I just loved that. It was just, it's a double cross of a double cross in a way. It's worth noting that that teenage son, the the Irish son that was originally given to the Hebrew family has now inherited the nickname Rabbi. That's how he's known in the production is Rabbi Milligan even though he's not a rabbi, obviously. but yeah, It's funny because Ethel Reed is a voiceover. She's too smart for her own good. She can't hide her shine at her school. No matter what she does, you know, she solves a math problem. The teacher hates that. The teacher just hates how smart she is. But she says, if America is a nation of immigrants, how do you become American? Assimilation. Assimilation to become similar, but similar to what? And so here are these immigrants that are at each other's throats and trying to get ahead and achieve the American dream. But whose dream is it? How? It's just it's just so interesting. And this time, the Irish teen who is so pissed at his father for, for giving him over to the Italians, instead of helping his father do a double cross, the Irish do a double cross, what does he do? He, he, he pulls a double double cross and he double crosses his own family. Well, now the question is, who is his family? His own biological right. family, he absolutely betrays. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So he's he's wondering now, what's in this for me? How am I going to keep doing this? And this is the thing. And this is the thing about that scene when the exchange is made. You can see the wound. You can see the wound on his face as he realizes that he's now being exchanged a second time. In fact, we flash back to him, his younger self, going through the same experience the first time. And so... We understand when he is at the door saying, I need to talk to my father. And then somebody comes in behind him and takes care of the the Irish guy. And then the Italians come streaming in. You understand like, oh, that wound was extraordinarily deeper than we anticipated. A quick break in this. In the prologue, you're in the past for a lot of time, but you keep getting flashes back to Ethel Rita's life and you get introduced to her parents. Do you have anything to say, Brian, about the casting of her father? I do. Um, he is not an actor. Like I looked him up and he is a musician and it shows that he's not an actor. Talk about what you mean by that. So when we talked about Mr. Between, right, we were blown away by the fact that Scott Ryan could not be trained and yet be so present in that role and like be so accomplished. And this character, I, I can see the strings, right? I can see that he is 
thinking a lot about being in a performance or being in front of the camera. It is not his natural expression. I mean, music is probably his more natural expression and that comes across. He's not comfortable. And it's not just a function of like, he's uncomfortable in the social situation that he's put into in this story, given the time and given the marriage. It is the performance itself that is uncomfortable. (laughs) So I... It's so funny because I agree with you, but in a totally different way. He definitely made me uncomfortable. So just to say that Ethel Rita's father, let's just call him Smutney, he's an undertaker, which is a very creepy and uncomfortable vocation to most of us. And there's a thinness to him. There's a creepiness to Andrew Bird. There's a crepiness to him and... There is something just very off-putting about him. He's so skinny and his suit doesn't fit him very well. He's His collar is much too big for his neck in some ways. And I mean, if you looked up an undertaker, you would see this. This is this is the kind of archetype to me. So for, for me, it worked. And I was wondering, like, who is this guy? I've never seen him before. And, you know, then I realized that I looked him up and he's an experienced actor, but he is a performer. He is used to being watched. And I want to get into that with you guys later when we talk about Chris Rock, who is also not known as being an actor, but he sure as fuck is used to being watched and performs. But by the way, Lisa, I, I don't know if you know that um, that part was written specifically for him. Really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. I came across that in the research. So as you said, it's 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 an odd casting and I found him highly watchable as you did. And I he was awkward, yes, but in a way that seemed to fit the character right. for me. So you see Ethel Rita with her father and you realize, oh, okay, this is going to be a, a mixed racial family unit. And we're then we're introduced to another character. Brian, you had to love this this actress. You had to. I did. I did. Jessie Buckley, I've only seen her in Chernobyl. She is evocative of Billy Bob Thornton's character in season one. He is a assassin and hitman, but he's basically Loki. He's like the god of chaos and mischief. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, there's things that he does aside from killing that are just like pranks that he plays on people to, to fuck with people. That's just hilarious. Right. And she is, has that same energy, that kind of like instigator and kind of malevolent supernatural force. You could all, I mean, like for when I was watching season one, all through that entire season, I literally thought like Billy Bob Thornton is the devil. He's the devil incarnate. Like, like, like that's what Noah Hawley is doing. He's personified the devil in this man. And I have the, the same sense of her in this way. Like she's that kind of chaotic force. I mean, she, I, yeah. I think she's you, great. Why don't you describe, so Jesse Buckley is playing this nurse that we meet. She's attending a funeral at the funeral home. Nurse Mayflower, describe her from your point of view. Prim, very proper. Even if when she's not in uniform, everything is just so. Episodes one, two, and three of Fargo had a similar kind of aesthetic in terms of the people and the places, locations and accents and so on. And she forms that link back to the movie. She's got the, you know, she's got the really thick Minnesotan accent, don't you know, and all so that I stuff have, that we know from the movie. I have a friend who's from Wisconsin and it's all the farm and my arm and my, you know. <laughs> I well, I, I I can't speak. I don't, I don't think I've ever met a real Minnesotan. I've only seen the film. But anyway, it was clear that she was the link to that. She's got that broad accent, which, by the way, in real life, she has a thick Irish yeah. brogue 
I was watching yeah, an interview knows, with yeah. her. Yeah, she's got, she's as thick as you know Bono or whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, well, when I say thick, I didn't mean I, I just yeah, the accent. Yeah. Anyway, right? Yes, but she's 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 very buttoned down, but she's also got this loose cannon thing about her, as Brian was saying, or as you were saying, Lisa. She could do anything at any time. It's there's this hint that she doesn't give a shit what anyone else thinks. She will do whatever she wants to do. And although she looks like a bit of a wallflower and that she's buttonholed into a certain role, as we know from the, even from, from episode one, that's not the case. She's, a, she's got, as we say here, a, a few ruse loose in the top paddock, meaning she's not all there. She's, exactly. She's a little bit crazy. Exactly. But her, mm-hmm. her person- and, and even more than that, she, there's every chance as the series unfolds that she's actually, if not uh, a psychopath than certainly a sociopath. And she hides it under this veneer of being a polite, nice, you know, little Minnesotan exactly. nurse. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing introduction. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this actress. I just, from the way she moves, the rhythm of her walk, and they've got her in this Lucille Ball red hairdo, you know, back in the day when the nurses had to wear those little white hats and the pinaform and all that stuff. And yeah, and that Midwest accent just slaps you across the face. It's so strong. But everything about her, it's a very theatrical performance, you know, when you when you add it all up. Yet it feel it still feels effortless. It doesn't feel put on. She's fucking incredible. It's not it's not excessive. It's not excessive. It is it is specifically drawn down to her physicalization, her accent. This is a very specific character that we're seeing, and it's not okay. over the top. I want to jump back into the, the flashbacks. We're at 1949, and now we've got, again, we have this familiar rhythm. Two crime families meet into the street. We got the Italians now, who are the lead dogs of Cox of the Walk. And in comes Loy Cannon. So here's where we see the real casting might of the show. Loy Cannon played by Chris Rock. He walks up to this Italian crime family. It's very interesting because he walks in alone and the Italian is like, "Where, where is the rest of your people? Or whatever. And then all of his people come from every corner of the street and you see them facing off. And what's great, I love this device. You probably hate this device, Brian. (laughs) But you see all the Italians and you see all of the black crime mafia facing off. And all of a sudden you see next to each actor, you see their name. It's like there's a subtitle of everybody's name. So you just know who's who. And that's so important because all of the younger Italian characters that you saw in the past scenes, they're grown up. The little Italian boy who got traded to the Irish is now grown up, Josto, and he's played by... Jason Jason Schwartzman, who we're going to get to that whole hollow balloon in a second you know you have chris rock and then the little irish boy who joined forces with the italians he's named rabbi milligan and he's played by the amazing ben wishaw uh, if you don't know who he is if you've seen paddington bear then you know his voice this actor his face i could stare at his face for years it's so rich it's weary it's it's got it's it's just got the, the uh, well, how would you describe his face, Brian? When I saw that he was in it, I was really surprised because he they don't show him in any of the previews that I remember seeing. So to see him in there was like holy cow! Because I remember seeing Wishaw in what Cloud Atlas, 
He played Q in the the most recent incarnation of the the Bond movie series. And yeah, he's just this. Why is beyond his years? He's got. Yeah, he's. He's got this kind of boy. He's he's got a very boyish look about him, but he's got this very kind of sad and world weary look about him always, where he's constantly thinking about the world. He's a fantastic actor. I mean, like I think he's extraordinarily underrated and doesn't get nearly the kind of attention that he should. It's a great piece of well, casting. Yeah, well, I think people like you and I know that this is a get. This is a huge get, I think, for the show, and that's an inside baseball kind of a thing. But yeah, he's got a very young boyish face, but it's the oldest fucking boy ever. I just love this casting. And and again, it's effortless. You look at him and his face just tells you everything that has happened. Noah Hawley has a remarkable record of getting really good big names attached to his shows. But then he also populates so many of the roles with great local casting. So I know a ton of these folks are from Chicago. Uh, James Vincent Meredith is a guy I actually did a play with when I lived in Chicago, and he is uh, in the show. He played Opal, the guy with glasses. William Dick, who plays the banker that they go to that we'll talk about later. He's a Chicago guy. The guy who played Yidler, the Irish, the father, the patriarch, whatever. He's a, a Chicago actor. There's a ton of just... Chicago actors all through this thing. And in fact, Allison Tolman, who was the lead in season one, she was working a temp job in Chicago who turned in a self-tape and booked the gig. You know what I mean? So he has drawn from local casting, from Chicago casting. He's not afraid of of that. He doesn't need it to be 100% off of a list, which is something that I love because people are getting a shot to like really demonstrate how good their cities are how good the talent is in that local pool. And I think this show, this season really, really shows it because they shot it in Chicago. You know, this guy Noah Hawley writes the best parts in the world. And my character is from the 1950s. He's a crime lord in uh, Kansas City. And it's just a fully formed character. He's a black man in the 50s trying to be a legal businessman and at the same time running a crime empire. He's a father, he's a husband, and he, you know, he's a complicated man in a world that is totally set up against him and he is determined to come out on top. You're acting like I work for you. We got an alliance. And I know you think part of being an American is standing on my neck. But I see the window signs. No colors. No Italians. So we're both in the gutter together, like it or not. G'day folks, Uh, Dino here. Could I ask you a favor? If you're enjoying the pod, go to your listening app of choice and give us a nice big five-star thumbs up. That will help other people find us. And one more thing. If you know somebody, family member, workmate, colleague, someone that you think might enjoy the pod, if you could take five seconds and just shoot them a link to the podcast and ask them to check it out and subscribe, that would be awesome. Thank you very much. And now back to the pod. So let's talk about the, the biggest casting get of this season is Chris Rock. I mean, what did you what did you both think when you saw that he was cast? Uh, my first thought was 
this could work. I, I didn't feel, oh, wait a minute, what's he doing in here? Because the first thing I thought of was the long cavalcade of comedians who have turned in stunning performances in, in in dramatic roles, you know, not least of which Robin Williams and Jim Carrey and, you know, the list goes on and on. You know, I, I only knew Chris from his uh, stand-up and not much of that. So I had a kind of a an open slate pretty much and I was ready to accept whatever was there without too much baggage. And I think he's really good. He's very believable. Like a, as a character, he's Aloy, the young patriarch of, the, uh, of this new up-and-coming crime family. I bought it 100%. I thought he was great. Unusual casting, but I just the first couple of seconds, I'm like, really, Chris Rock, and then I got over it. And I just knew enjoyed it. that for him to do this, it must be an incredible role. It must be something that challenges him in a way that we've never seen for him to do, quote unquote, TV. I guess this is called TV. Would you, I, I guess you would call it TV, but that yeah. there must be something so special about the arc of the emotions in this character that brought him to it. And I would love to talk to Noah Hawley and see if this, as Brian has said, if this is from a list, which in casting terms is we have a list of actors we would offer to, and the casting director usually comes up with that, or if he wrote the role with Chris in mind, or I'm just interested in, in how that all came together. Maybe we can get Rachel Tenner on to talk to us about that. But standing right next to Chris Rock is the fucking king the king that I just, I, I'm so proud that I got to cast on Criminal Minds, Mr. Glenn fucking Terman. If you've seen The Wire, then you know who Glenn Terman is. He is just an incredible presence, presence anchor for anything he's in. Glenn Terman is who you turn to. And when you talk about somebody who understands style, who wears the fuck out of his costume, who knows how to wear a fedora, who knows how to walk into a scene, he there is just nobody like him. And having him work He's got all of his scenes are with Chris Rock. And, you know, like we've said before in Mr. In-Between, when you put somebody, a newbie like Scott Ryan in a scene with Damon Harriman, he's going to be in good company. He's going to learn so much from just being in those scenes with somebody. And I just thought that their pairing, Glenn Turman, as Dr. Senator, that's the name of his character, and Chris Rock as Loy Cannon, I loved seeing that. And I, I'm sure that it anchored Chris Rock. That's my guess. That scene where where the families meet and they're on the street, I thought Chris Rock was really good in it. It wasn't until later scenes where it's him and Glenn Turman in a scene together where, for me, you see the mismatch in Gravitas. You know, for me, my first exposure to Glenn Turman was a different world. I never world. saw that. And I never I watched hate, that. Oh, my gosh. I hate – and I hate multicam <laughs> comedy, like with a passion. You know what I mean? But then – you see him on House of Lies, where he plays the father of Don Cheadle. And you want to talk about a guy who brings it, who's just like this ultra cool grandfather. And he's just, he really is amazing. And I think that for me, I started really buying Chris Rock in episode four. There's a scene that I'll, that I'll speak to there where I go, that's where I buy him. And I do buy him in this scene, like where the families meet on the street. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it is an interesting piece of casting because he's not like the conventional choice by Again, a long this shot. This casting helps. It sort of is the the difference of the actors is reflected in the difference of the roles, right? Because Doctor Senator, as a role, has more gravitas than Loy. He's got a bigger picture. He's so much more educated as well. 
But in terms of the dynamic, though, okay, so like Michael Corleone as the new boss of the family after Don Vito dies, Tom Hagen is not an equal to him, even though he's he's younger, even though he's the new boss. Tom Hagen is not an equal. He is in subservience to him. He serves him. And that's the difference to me. Like Dr. Senator is the concierge. Mm-hmm. Essentially, he's conciliary, right? I think that the energy that he brings is of a bigger, more powerful presence. And you really see it in the scene in the bank, like how he sits, how he talks. Chris Rock is eager and is leaning forward. Dr. Senator is leaning back. But I love back. that. But don't you he, love that? I don't love it or hate it. I don't have an I don't have a feeling about what that particular framing looks like. But for me, like what it means, wh- how I translate that as a viewer, that's what I am just making commentary on. I'm not saying that Chris Rock's performance is bad. It's not. And in terms of like the dynamics and the power dynamics in both families, it's very clearly drawn with Dr. Senator and with Lloyd. It's not so clearly drawn with the Fada family. The great thing about Glenn Turman, he was married to Aretha Franklin. Hmm. I just realized that. <laughs> yes. What? Yes. For how long? I don't know. I had no idea. Good okay. Lord. Well, that guy's okay. cool, though. All right. So just to speed forward, so we know what's going to happen. These two families are going to trade sons. Uh, Chris Rock, Loy Cannon, is going to give his little son Satchel over to the Italianos, and they're going to trade Fada's youngest son to the Black Mafia. And it's this still, we know what's going to happen. The families face off. But this time you feel, I felt like there was a lot more emotion on the part of Loy Cannon giving his son over. It wasn't just a, this is how it worked. He was much more uncomfortable with it. You felt a lot more emotion for his child than you had in all of the previous trades. Well, that's because Noah shows us Satchel's reaction in the car prior to that ceremony. He's not having it. I mean, we're in a modern era. It's 1950. You know what I mean? And the kid doesn't want to go. And Noah shows us that. The other kid is like, I don't want to go. What are you doing? Which is interesting. So now you're breaking a pattern. And that's that's a powerful storytelling device to me is you set up pattern, 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 break. It's interesting because Ethel Rita's voiceover is none of them are considered white, which I think is a big surprise to a lot of people that Italians and Irish were really considered white. They're all, they're Diego's, Negroes, mix, all fighting for the right to be created equal, but equal to what and who decides? I don't know why. It just rang so true to me. Maybe it's just the times we're living in. We're still trying to figure this out in our country. Anyway, so Ethel Rita, she concludes her report and you see them now. Okay, now we're back in the present day and she, you see Loy Cannon, Chris Rock with her parents and there's something going on. Something is afoot. Something is being agreed to with this black mafia head and her parents and she doesn't know what it is and her mama is not about to tell her what it is and her mama rules the roost and her poor dad is like, Sorry, kid. I wish I could tell you what's happening. But anyway, so that's the prologue. And I just was really transfixed by it. And I know when we come back, we're going to talk about the rest. We're still just in the first episode, but it's such thick description. It's so rich. And I just want to amplify the costume, the, the wardrobing, the music, the casting. For me, the writing, the structure, I just, I'm, I'm just in love with it. Boys, 
I, I came to it with zero expectations. I'd only seen half of the trailer and didn't know what to expect. And it seemed to me that that, especially that 25 minute opening prologue, which by the way, you end up holding your breath. You're just waiting for it to unconsciously, you're like, where are the titles? What's going on? How long is this going to go on? And like you said, 25 minutes in before you get the opening titles to the, to the uh, app, which is amazing. But the device of showing the succession of others, right? It starts out with the Americans and then there's the Jews of the others and then they become assimilated and then the Irish are the others and then the Italians are the others and then the blacks are the others and then what have we all been experiencing around the world in the last, you know, 10, 20 years? It's a succession of right. others. Assimilated, but assimilated yeah, what you, to what? Uh, yeah. Assimilated to what? Yeah. When you, when you tip uh, multiculturalism, right? You, you tip a whole bunch of ingredients into a dish. Well, assimilated to what? And I just thought that was a brilliant device in the opening 25 minutes to just make that point that America's a melting pot like Australia is, but we keep falling for this idea Any of others. Any last thoughts, Brybro? I'm going to go to the scene with, with Cannon and with Fada with the, the blood oath. Prior to the prior two scenes, uh, they spit and shake, whatever. This time, uh, Loy says, I thought we we're going to do this like men and has a knife out and cuts himself. Fada, the elder Fada cuts himself and they shake hands in blood. This is the overarching problem that I have as somebody who is a huge fan of all things mafia. That blood oath is a Cosa Nostra ritual for associates to become made men. They do that in as part of that ritual. And the problem that I have with there are too many anachronistic things occurring in the show for my taste, in 1950, there was a broader, greater national organized syndicate that they paid homage to, and that there were these kind of sub-fiefdoms across the country. There was the Chicago syndicate, Kansas City, there was Miami, there's Boston. There were like these pockets, but the, the head, the five families resided in New York. And there's Miller's Crossing works as a gangster movie because it's set in the 20s before there was a kind of coalescing of these families into an organized outfit, right? So you can have like standalone gangsters vying for pieces of the pie and prohibition. It's set in the 20s. In 1950, you have a very particular set of circumstances that most people who have watched any kind of mafia, anything, that's including Goodfellas, understand and know. And I think that they don't acknowledge that to the great disservice of the story. It takes me out of a reality, a reality of, of the given time. Noah Hawley is like that Shakespeare director who tries to fit his Shakespeare play into this particular period so that it fits his message. Or he make, he sets, he sets King Lear as Trump. And so everything then has to be like Trump and the American blah, blah, blah. And, and you lose something. You lose something in the actual telling of your story by trying to fit it to fit the time to your circumstance. It weakens it, in my opinion. And and there's plenty of instances that, that jumped out at me that made me think that and took me out of yeah, the story. I hear you. That's why I want to bring on my friend, Dr. Douglas Flo, who is an expert at, at this time period and the, and the African-American experience during this time. And I'm hoping to get him on. Um, but I would just, I hear you and I see you, Bri, and I. Thanks you. for acknowledging me. And I appreciate I that. You, Cal you Californians are unbelievable. F your, hey, 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 Snowflake, F your feelings. But what I would proffer is that I think what Holly is doing is just showing a counterpoint to what we've expected 
from our mafia canon, right? Because there is no Michael Corleone in this one who can take over when Marlon Brando dies. There is, I mean, there are so many things that just don't work out the way that we expect them to. You know what Fada says when he goes to do the blood oath with um, Chris Rock? He calls him a ragazzo. He's a boy, ragazzo. And I, I bought that. I'm like, okay, this guy thinks that he's doing the Italian way, or this is that this means something to do this blood oath, but he's a ragazzo. Anyway, so I bought it. Brian didn't buy it. Dean doesn't know what to make of us. He doesn't know what happens when mommy and daddy fight, but that's okay. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, that, that never happens down here. Hey, and, I and, won't, and, I, and I won't speak to Lisa until this next podcast, and I'll put on my best well, face. Guys, by the way, we, we, we've been talking. <laughs> sorry, just before we go, we've been talking about these two families. So, just remind me, uh, Lisa, what is the name of what's Loy's last name? Cannon. And what's the Italian family Fada. name? Fada. Fada. Say them together fast. Ooh, Cannon Fada. Hey, there you go. There's another Good one of my work. little dot joining things. That's no accident, they, right? I never would have thought of that. Well, and holy shit, my notes I put even I even put scene with Canon slash Fada. And I didn't even it meant nothing. I love it. I love it. That's why I have you. That's what makes this show the show that I wanted to do. Thank you everybody for listening. This is Killer Casting. Until next time. Killer Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music. And Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill.